Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. At a time when the stock market seems to be making new highs every day, eking out a little bit more in terms of gains uh, without going crazy, a lot of investors are seeing stocks as a good place to be over the next three years. Among those, Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors, which oversees more than a billion dollars and is based in Albany, New York. Hugh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, I just want to get your main points that you laid out when you came up with forecasts for this year, next year, and the year after. The main thing is is earnings. You know, I think everybody that talks to me has the same question, and that is how can you make the case for stocks having done what they've done and even going even higher, uh, given all the problems in Washington, some of the international geopolitical concerns, concerns about getting health care through, concerns about the tax, tax cut, the Trump tax cut. How can you make the case for higher prices? Well, the answer to that question is this is all about earnings. And in a cold-hearted way, we're looking at very positive growth in earnings, both for 2018 and 2019. And if you crunch the numbers, taking into consideration the earnings that I think lie ahead, you can make the case for higher stock prices, 4.5% between now and the end of 2018, and maybe as much as 11%, 10.8% between now and the end of 2019. So higher stock prices, and that might even be helped a little bit if we get a, a Trump tax cut. Not a lot, but some. So it's really all about earnings. Uh, Hugh, I wonder if we could take a look from the investor perspective, because let's say you're already long stocks uh, or you have a portfolio that, that favors stocks. If you were to get out, if you were to sell, chances are you might have a gain. You'd have to pay the tax on it, and then you'd be faced with the question, what do you do with the cash, correct? Uh, you certainly would be faced with that, and it'd be uh, not an easy, not an easy uh, challenge, to be honest with you. I mean, you know that interest rates are very low. You know that uh, if you take that cash and you invest it in the bond market at a time when the Federal Reserve is uh, interest, increasing interest rates, not only uh, one more time, perhaps in 2017, but three times in 2018, you're likely to suffer a loss on that fixed income portfolio. So it. It's really a challenge. I mean, a big challenge. I think the returns from the fixed income markets for 2018-2019 are going to be close to zero. You'll get some money from the coupon. You'll lose money on the uh, principal of the uh, fixed income. So it is a challenge for sure. You know, I'm struck by the fact that your forecasts for next year and the year after don't include any sort of downturn. You see wages increasing, albeit uh, not a lot, but steadily. Uh, and you see just a general kind of continuation of what we've been seeing over the past year. I'm wondering what could make you change your mind and why are you so confident that we won't see uh, some sort of economic downturn? Well, you're, you're, never, you're, never least, you're never that confident. I say these things, I forecast these things, uh, you know, quite frankly, with my fingers tightly crossed. And, you know, I assume, you know, we're, we're at a low level of interest rates. Yes, the Federal Reserve is going to be raising interest rates. Yes, interest rates are going to be uh, going higher. But I don't think we're at a level right now that really threatens the economic expansion. So making the forecast that the economy is going to continue to expand through 2018-19 
is a little bit easier. The second thing is I don't expect that we're going to have a move towards uh, fiscal restraint. If anything, we're going to have a move towards uh, easier fiscal policy, more generous fiscal policy in the form of tax cuts and spending increases. So it'd be really from the policy point of view, you'd say, gee, it's just... It's just too early to say this this thing is going to end. Uh, it looks like it's going to go further. But but talk to me at the end of, well, at the be- middle of 2019 when we have interest rates higher and we start to get much more nervous about federal budget deficits, and I think those are in the cards. When we start to get that nervous, then we're going to move a shift in the in the different direction, and then you're going to start to see it show up in the markets, and things are going to get a lot more a lot more dicey, and prospects for a turn down in the uh, stock market and the economy will start to get uh, certainly higher, if not real high. All right. So, Hugh, let's say uh, your forecast is accurate, and things will kind of grind along a little bit higher uh, all the time over the next uh, two and a half years. I'm wondering, what's the best way for investors to allocate to markets? Is it by, you know, passive funds that look to broad, that look to capture gains of broad swaths of uh, specific stock markets? Is it active managers? What are you advising clients? Uh, What's your approach? That is a really great question, because you and I both know that that uh, uh, passive investing has worked a lot better than active investing up until really this year. And this year we're starting to see a little bit of a shift, and active managers have been doing a lot better. Whether you lose exchange-traded funds for passive investing or you start to look at active managers, I'm not sure how what the outcome is going to be. The only thing I can say with a lot of confidence, is, especially given my forecast, is that you need to have a meaningful allocation, whether it's passive or active, a meaningful allocation to equities. In other words, don't go in the bunkers right now. For example, if your target is 50% equities and you've got a range of, say, 35% to 65%, a toleration range, you might be up at around 60%. And I wouldn't change that, whether it's active or passive. But your question, should it be active, should it be passive? Great question. We're all grappling with that question, and we're starting to see active managers outperform indexes or passive management. Hugh, uh, have you ever had a customer or a client who pulled their account because the performance was, let's say, 200 basis points less than some benchmark? Does that really happen on a regular basis? Well, we've been lucky. We've been fortunate. We don't take the levels of risk that are going to give us that 200 basis points below benchmark. If we did, I wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, if uh, investors uh, did pull their pull stakes and and go to another uh, another manager because that's not what we promised them. We promised them that we're going to be lay roughly 50 basis points below, 50 basis points above. We've had really good luck or fortune because we picked some really good stocks in the last couple of years, so we've been well above benchmark. I don't think we're for any long extended period of time. To be honest with you going to depart very significantly from benchmark. And that means no downside and therefore no loss of customers. All of our customers are quite frankly, like us, are kind of risk averse. They really want you to do okay in an up market. But what they want more than anything is, is really to preserve capital in a down market because that's the secret well, long-term performance. Hugh, real quick, uh, how are you creating that insurance, building it into the portfolio? 
Well, you, you do it in a lot of different ways. There's a meaningful, you know, balanced portfolio. The second thing is you reduce risk by having high-quality names in the portfolio. But much more importantly is to have relative balance among things in the portfolio. So you don't make a significant bet when it comes to sector allocation. Sector allocation, you can certainly be overweight technology, maybe a little bit underweight technology, but you have to have uh, you have to have allocation to all. In my view all 11 sectors of the market. You can't significantly overweight small cap stocks. Have a meaningful allocation to large, mid, and small, but not so uh, significantly different from the benchmark. In other words, don't take a lot of sector or capitalization risk. That's just simply a mistake. Thank you very much, Hugh Johnson, Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, Hugh Johnson Advisors. Well, uh, let's uh, get more information about uh, a group of uh, companies that will be reporting their results. We're going to get Eli Lilly and Biogen. They'll come out with their results uh, tomorrow. Plus, we've got Amgen and Gilead Sciences this week, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merck, Eli Lilly. And uh, for that, we've got Sam Fazelli. He's the director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence in London, knows everything about these companies. Sam, thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, where, do you want, where do you want to begin? What's the most important uh, results, or what should we be looking for this because we've got a variety of companies. Right. I'm going to begin with just talking about the large pharma companies because that's where I spend most of my time uh, looking at things. So you want to do GlaxoSmithKline? We can, but I, you have to admit that the, I think the star of the show this week and, frankly, for the third quarter will be Eli Lilly. Okay, so that's they've tomorrow. Got, that's tomorrow. They've got some decent sales growth expected, about 6%. But really what's going on at Lilly is not only you're getting new drugs, and some existing key drugs, such as Trulicity and Jardiance, driving the top line, and they're both for diabetes, and we know what a big problem that is. Uh, but it's really the margin story in Lilly that's quite attractive and exciting, and in that the uh, company's working has got a long way to come and meet and be anywhere near some of the other others peers. It's of its other other peers, therefore giving it an opportunity to give us uh, almost three times its sales growth in EPS growth expectations for this quarter. So, so that that's really what's driving the excitement on that one. But can you give us a sense of what's driving that? Is that that they can price their uh, drugs at a higher spot? Is it because they're cutting staff? I mean, where are the uh, where are the margins coming from? Well, I mean, again, Lilly has been one of those companies that, uh, putting Bayer aside, has been at the low end of operating margins among all of its what we call the 13 large pharma peers, if you still want to call Bayer a large, uh, Bayer a large pharma company. So there's a lot of room for, for the uh, performance there, and a lot of it that come from uh, basically a lo- um, operational leverage that they're getting and also more uh, consolidating its sales and, and, and uh, different aspects of their business, which the new CEO is particularly focused on in terms of delivering, although it has been a target for the past couple of years at least to get that margin, the one they look at, which is R&D plus uh, SG&A expenses as a percentage of sales to below 50%. And they're doing a pretty good job of getting that. So it's not just about drug pricing. In fact, if I may, Lilly has been one of those that's not been uh, particularly aggressive in its price rises, especially in the insulin area where there's been a lot of attention recently in diabetes, where if you look at the net price of the insulin products on the market, they've been flat for the past 
three, four, five years. So no real net increase in prices. It's volume that's driving that. Well, and that, I just want to get your thoughts, if you, if you can, a little, just a, one more about Eli Lilly having to do with uh, patent uh, litigation and patent interpretation. How's that going mm-hmm. to affect the company? Well, I mean, you know, they have, they, they're affected by patent experience like everybody else. They haven't done anything particularly um, different to trying to protect their patents. So they've got one that's coming up with Alimta, which is a cancer drug, uh, a billion and a half, two billion dollars of sales in total. And that um, is going through the motions. It was challenged by IPRs and it's won uh, some of those. It's been challenged in the UK and it won those. So, but eventually the, the molecule will go off patent and there's nothing you can do about that. You'll, you know, th- this is a formulation patent that they've been protecting and it seems to have withstood the test of time so far. But eventually it will come. Other than that, there's nothing really in there that they're not doing any uh, special moves uh, or if, if you're referring to, for instance, uh, doing a, a deal with a, with, a, with a tribe or anything like that. None of, nothing, like, nothing like that has happened there. I'd love to just get a, a quick overview of what to expect from Merck, because it seems like uh, they have a less rosy uh, expectation with respect to uh, margins and how much their sales right. could, uh, right. could be, right? Right, yeah. So Merck is in a very cutthroat business at the moment, in the cutthroat business of immuno-oncology in cancer, i.e. trying to get and it's working, immune system, the patient's immune system to attack their own cancer. So they are the lead along with uh, Bristol-Myers, who had the first drug on the market for, in this uh, uh, mechanism, in this, uh, in this arena, called Yervoy a few years back. Uh, but basically, it's so cutthroat. So you've got uh, AstraZeneca, Roche, Bristol-Myers, and Merck all competing to get the biggest, broadest indications and the largest number of combinations worked out for treating cancer, which costs money and it needs marketing. So what Merck has been very open with is we are getting some sales uh, potentially in in the system. I mean, the sales are expected to be about flat in 3Q versus last year because they've got generic expiries. But don't expect margin evolution there because we're going to try and we're going to have right. to invest in the business. They've been pretty open about this, right. which, of course, is a bit tough when you really only yeah. have one drug that's growing. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us. Sam Fazelli, director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from London. Well, Halliburton reported earnings this morning, Schlumberger, last week, and here to tell us uh, what the highlights are, Liam Denning, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering energy. So what stood out from you uh, with respect to Halliburton's earnings? Its shares are down slightly, although not as down as Schlumberger's. Uh, yeah, so th- the the biggest thing here is just the different messages coming out of these two companies. So um, the, the key differences between Schlumberger and Halliburton is Halliburton is much more North America focused, like 60% of revenue. Schlumberger, it's around a third. Uh, so Halliburton, whenever there's a big uptick in US activity, particularly in the shale basins, Halliburton's the usual beneficiary. And so when Schlumberger reported on Friday, uh, North America was kind of the only bright spot in their earnings, which made it very likely that Halliburton was going to step up and, and beat earnings. And, and that's exactly what it did on, on Monday morning. Well, I just just explain why North America is doing so much better than everywhere else for them. 
So a big reason is uh, it, it's really a timing thing. And this, this is actually kind of the crux of, of the difference between the two companies. And it kind of reflects a big difference in the global oil market. What we're seeing at the moment is in the old days, what would happen is the oil price would uh, collapse and then everyone would stop investing and then the oil price would rise. But then it would take several years for everyone to, you know, find new wells, uh, find new prospects, drill wells, bring the oil onto production. And so you had a fairly long cycle. What shale has done is it's kind of short circuited that what happens is the oil price has come down. But then as soon as the oil price gets back above 50 bucks or so, and particularly a year out, which is when EMP companies are hedging their future production, they all kind of get back to work, which then caps the rally. And so that's a big difference we've seen in Schlumberger and Halliburton's outlook. Schlumberger is saying things are slowing down in North America. Oil prices are going to rise. We're going to see a big uptick in international uh, drilling uh, coming through. Halliburton, less certain about that. All right, Leah, let me just go through a couple of sort of points here, right? Because crude oil right now trading on the NYMEX, $51.76 uh, for a barrel. Uh, that's West Texas. Yeah. Let's go through margins when it comes to Halliburton. Mm-hmm. Good margins, right? They have very good margins. Uh, they uh, they kind of took a hit earlier this year. You may remember they issued a profit warning right. in the first quarter. And that, but but wasn't that to take some some uh, of their uh, capacity out of the market and to then prepare for what they thought was going to, and has happened, which is this uh, extensive fracking? Yeah, uh, they were actually talking. What what they did was actually they put more capacity into the market, so they had to take a big cost right. up front to redeploy that stuff, and it's it's paid off because their their incremental margins since then have been have been up quite sharply. What about efficiency gains? Because they're pointing to the fact, and you've written about this, that it's a, that they are focused on the fact that it's going to cost a lot less money in the future to get whatever you want out of the ground, whether it's the shale oil or regular oil. That's right. One of the one of the points I actually made on the call this morning was they said, look, you look at the rig count, it's it's way down on what it was in 2014. But the fact is people are drilling longer wells. They said, actually, foot for foot, we're actually drilling as much this year as we did in 2014 when all was at 100 bucks. So maybe you can get rid of the Baker Hughes like weekly, you know, up, down, sideways, you know, which way it moves because tech, this is as much a technology story. Well, we is still it, need to have something to make uh, on Friday afternoon. Well, yeah, know, it makes but, you week. But I mean, is this right. true though that, I mean, it really has become a technology story when you're talking about energy a- markets? Absolutely. I mean, this has been a, a theme for at least the past year. You know, Halliburton struck this alliance with Microsoft. We're seeing these kind of alliances being struck all over the sector. So uh, there was sort of an implication there when you were talking about how Schlumberger seems confident that prices are going to rise and Halliburton seems less sure of that. Right. Is part of that, first of all, that Schlumberger needs prices to rise in order to hit its projections? And how high does it have to see prices rise? And what's Halliburton seeing as far as a projected uh, crude value in the future? Well, let's let's... Let's note first that they're both talking their own book, right? So, of course, so yeah. but this is important um, to see how they're talking their book. It's, I would say it's less, it's less a price level, and it's more to do with something that Halliburton raised on the call, which I think was very interesting. So if you go back to that point I made about the short cycle kind of nature of shale, with shale drillers, all they need to see is the oil price to get appreciably above 50 bucks uh, a barrel over the next 12 months. For an international project, and this is the point Halliburton made, if you're going to drill a deep water field somewhere in Africa, you not only need to see that price rise above 50 bucks or whatever level it is that you need for the next 12 months, you got to think it's going to hold that for at least three to four years, because otherwise 
why would you drill a well that isn't going to start producing for two to three, four years? And I think that's the, the key challenge. Yeah, well, that's also the challenge for investors, right? Because whether you're long-term, it depends how much money you're going to put in the ground to get out what's going to pay you back. Right. And that's why we've seen, particularly with the international companies, you know, even though this is apparently a historic opportunity to invest while prices of rigs and that sort of thing are low, you'll notice all their investors are basically saying, pay us dividends because we don't want you putting it in the ground. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, always appreciate your columns. Uh, he is our gadfly columnist when it comes to energy, mining, and commodities, Liam Denning. And you can follow him uh, on Twitter at Liam Denning. It's time to pay up. Well, Friday is the time to pay up, and uh, next week might be the time to pay up if you happen to be the Venezuelan uh, nationally owned oil company. Here to tell us more about the debt situation and Venezuela is Jamin Patel, our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, Jamin, thanks very much for being with us. Appreciate it. Maybe just set out for people exactly how much does PDVSA owe? Will it be able to pay? And then maybe just describe the relationship that it has with Rosneft and how that might sort of play into all of this. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, to, to answer your first question, how much, how much is PDVSA? Oh, we really have to look at both PDVSA and, and the Venezuela sovereign uh, debt uh, because um, it, you know, it's sort of hard to, to differentiate between the two. The two are, are, are really quite integrated. And um, to the extent that PDVSA doesn't have funds to make its bond payments, then um, I think you have, to, you have to turn to the sovereign. So the total there, if you're looking at the, at the total bonds, is about $67 billion. Uh, but you, you have to add to that somewhere uh, around $50 billion uh, of, of loans, primarily from, from China, uh, Russia, and uh, you know, through, uh, potentially through Rosneft as well. So uh, that number could be as high as 120 billion. Now, what's coming due this week and next week is uh, is an amortization, an amortization payment on a uh, on a secured bond that's about 184 uh, 840 million, and then there is about a one a uh, little over a billion dollars on a uh, on a regular unsecured bond uh, coming due in November the second. Yeah. But Jamin, let's just take a step back for for a moment. So Venezuela is obviously deeply troubled uh, from a political point of view, and literally uh, people are starving in the country uh, with an average weight loss of, I think, 20 pounds in the past year or two uh, among the population. I mean, there's been a huge uh, shortage of food. There have been long lines for the most basic supplies, a lot of tension rising. And there is a question about whether a default on the nation's sovereign de uh, debt would force the current leader, Maduro, uh, to exit, right? I mean, so, so the question is, is Venezuela about to default, given that they have more than $2 billion coming due in the next two weeks uh, with limited resources to cover that? Well, um, you know, that, that, that's the big question at this point, and, and it really has come down to crunch time for these guys. Um, it's entirely possible that they will make the payments. Um, the, the history here has been every time uh, a maturity has come due, they have somehow come up with the funds either by securing Citgo or 
uh, borrowing from uh, from outside sources uh, to, to to make the payments, uh, cutting capex, cutting their imports um, in order to to fill that cash flow uh, gap. So um, it, it appears that uh, they are working on a deal with Rosneft uh, to enter into either some asset sales or JVs, uh, which potentially will come up with enough consideration to to make these payments. Total payments are somewhere between three and three and a half billion because they're about the, the, the two billion or so and and some interest payments. Okay, uh, that's over the next um, two weeks, about three and a half billion. Uh, well, actually, over the next week or so, there's one on Friday and then there's one on November the second. So October twenty seventh and November the second. So they they really cannot afford to default. I mean, I think I think a default would be would be almost unthinkable, just given uh, that uh, Pedivesta accounts for something like ninety five percent of their FX uh, flow. So if Pedivesta were to stop functioning as it does right now, which would potentially happen in a default, um, I, I think things would go from bad to worse for for the people uh, as as well as obviously the government. So I think even the opposition really doesn't want uh, want to see a default here. Jamin, how did they sell this stuff to begin with? I mean, it's not as if the situation in Venezuela is that new. No, no, it isn't. It's 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 been going on for a while. But um, you know, when oil prices are at a hundred dollars a barrel or higher, uh, it's much easier to to manage your your uh, your balances. but at, at forty dollars, forty-five dollars, um, and particularly when you don't have a rainy day fund, when you haven't prepared for it, uh, things deteriorate very quickly. Um, yeah. Now, the, the government. Uh, just to answer, you know, earlier question: if if there is a default, I think I think there is a good chance that uh, 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 President Maduro would have to uh, potentially leave his post, potentially even leave the country. Um, so I think I think they will do everything they can to to make this particular payment. Uh, and then don't forget, there's an election coming due, a presidential election in uh, toward the end of next year, November of next year, uh, at which point Venezuela has some uh, some fairly heavy uh, uh, maturities coming due that they have to make. So can we just get a sense of why Russia and China are continuing to lend to Venezuela when Venezuela doesn't seem to be getting more creditworthy uh, and is igniting ire among other big economies like the U.S.? Well, I think I think China, to me, seems to be pretty much maxed out at this point. I don't think they're going to be putting uh, a lot more um, uh, in, in terms of investment into the country. Uh, Russia has has a you know potentially different agenda. Much of it may be political. Uh, Venezuela's ties to Cuba, uh, some of the other Caribbean nations. Um, but it's also a way for them to ensure that they have a steady supply of uh, of oil um, going forward. Not that Russia itself doesn't uh, is is not a heavy oil producer, but uh, uh, this this just gives them that one additional avenue. And and then a lot of it is political as well, uh, political influence, uh, political economic uh, ties. Uh, the two countries have been tied for a long time. There have been uh, uh, significant arms sales. Uh, from uh, from Venezuela to uh, excuse me from Russia to Venezuela, so I think it all sort of ties in with that. Uh, just quickly, uh, Jamin, if uh, if you got a call from uh, an investor who recently had purchased some of this uh, Venezuelan PDVSA debt, w- what would you be explaining to them that they may they may not know? I mean, they might know about the risks of uh, of repayment, but what about the the potential for unexpected uh, activity, whether it's from Russia, China, or indeed even the Venezuelan regime? 
I think you really have to differentiate between the long-term and the short-term bondholders. The, the, the immediate bonds that are coming due, the ones that I talked about on Friday and, and next week, um, you know, at this point, it really depends upon whether they, this Russian deal comes through. Um, and, and that's not even getting into the technical side of, of, of things because there is no grace period on these payments. So if they don't make them, uh, the bondholders could theoretically call a default. Um, for the long-term bondholders, um, it's, it's, look, you've got a country here which has got $300 billion in oil reserves, so it's not a solvency issue. It really is a liquidity issue. Um, and if, if there is a regime change, and that's really what, what the bondholders will be looking for right. in the long run, um, then that would open up all sorts of avenues for additional aid because yeah. then they could re-engage with the IMF, they could re-engage right. with the U.S., right. uh, some of the sanctions would be lifted and so on. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Jamin Patel, Senior Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about Venezuela debt coming due. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.